Uh, do you guys want to just say your names? Jeremy Kessler. And I'm David Posen. I'll splice that in somewhere. Yeah. Maybe, it may be awkward, but like... You can just have it recur just like every 20 or 30 seconds like a backseat. <laughs> you know what? We, we, and, and we, of course, don't mind any amount of splicing. I feel like we, uh, we were inelegant no, no, no. Many times throughout the interview. And, oh my uh, God. You guys, you guys don't understand. That's my role in this podcast is to speak with such inelegance and imprecision <laughs> that our guests, you know, it puts our guests on a pedestal, which is my, you <laughs> know, I, I only have the most uh, beneficial and moral reasons for sounding like a you know, blathering idiot. Are all of your guests conversant in Dungeons and Dragons? Well, I, see, not Joe, to start with. Joe t- <laughs> Is that that's not a basis of selection? <laughs> well, uh, Joe does all of our bookings, and so I, I can't say for sure what criteria he uses. Uh, it, it, it never ceases to amaze, uh, but I don't know what those criteria are. But one of our episodes did involve a description of leveling up. Remember that one, Joe? Oh, sure. So, you know, d and is always making an appearance, no matter where you go. Now, now Jeremy, though, I, I, it just occurs to me your name... It could be disappointing to a lot of people in the following sense. It starts J.K. and then Kessler. Instead of rolling. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, I never, my, 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 my move to the YA market never really worked. So that's why we write legal theory papers. This this paper is gripping though. I'm telling you. It is. And all the more surprising given that you are affiliated with Hufflepuff. Uh, the <laughs> or Ravenclaw. I mean, it's you're you're not a Gryffindor yet. The paper is as strong as if written by a Gryffindor. Ooh, kind of amazing. Interesting. I'm not a Harry Potter nerd. I have ah. to say. So this is maybe I've surpassed me. you in in that, humor. That flew by me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we got to start this whole thing again. Okay. <laughs> Let's start with introductions. You're going to splice it together. I'm gonna. Yeah. Who knows? This is. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah. So tell, tell. So this this is an amazing paper. It is. I, I was just yeah, really amazing, and I think really good for this show because in the course of talking about like your meta theory about theories. So this is a this is like don't hit stop, people. Don't hit stop. Even though this is a paper which is a a theory of theories, yeah. uh, I think there's enough in here of interest to practicing lawyer. Like everybody, everybody should be excited about this because on the one hand I we agree. get to, I think to understand it. And I want you guys to talk about it. There's a great mini history of several different theoretical movements within law, yep. and, and probably the major ones. Uh, and and then there's a description of how these theories kind of are are, are born, live, and and transmogrify, and then die, which I think is really interesting and exactly the right kind of question to be asking. And and I had uh, as I was reading it on a number of occasions, I had thoughts about doctrines in individual. Uh, antitrust law in particular, but but some IP ones as well, where I, I kept thinking about this as a, as a story of doctrinal change as well. Yeah. N- a theory of how doctrinal theories change, not just theory, uh, not just broader public law theories. So what, maybe we should start there, like what we mean by, by theories. Because when I think of legal theory, you know, the, the kind of stuff I'm interested in working on now is theories of theories as well, right? But when you guys talk about theories, it's, it, you, you're talking about in particular prescriptive legal theories. And maybe just some examples are the easiest way of, of figuring out what we mean by that. Is that a good place to start, you think? Sure, sure. Well, I'll just say as a first cut that we, by prescriptive theories, we just mean theories that talk about what legal decision makers should do, courts, regulators, um, legislators. And we 
talk about ways in which descriptive theories also evolve, but we find the most acute evolutionary dynamics in the prescriptive space. And uh, so these are public law theories like originalism about how judges should interpret the Constitution or textualism about how judges should interpret statutes or cost-benefit analysis about how administrators should assess regulatory options. More, more specifically, we talk about public law theories that have this abstract procedural orientation that talk about how to resolve legal questions in a depoliticized procedural register. And we say that those are the most prevalent sorts of prescriptive theories in public law today. We got a question like, should abortion be legal in Texas or something like that? Right. And and what a legal theory does is is it, it's, it's kind of a constellation of reasons which are somehow bound together that allow one to answer that question. If you get a case challenging uh, the right to have an abortion or the, the ability to have an abortion, you would kind of put the facts of your case and the details of that law through your legal theory and out would come some answer. And then, and then that legal theory would ask the judge to make certain kinds of uh, considerations, defer in some ways, make his or her own determination. Whether or not that, that story applies to all legal theories, that definitely does capture what we mean by prescriptive legal theories and prescriptive public law legal theories. It basically provides... Uh, the judge or the other relevant legal decision maker with uh, a grid or a decision procedure about how to answer a question like that, like the abortion question. Uh, crucially, not by telling the judge something about the moral character or the lawfulness of abortion as such. Yeah, I mean, in- interestingly, the what we see as kind of has, having disappeared from the public law landscape in the last several decades, or at least gotten marginalized, are theories that would reason from moral or political principle in the first instance. And so, you know, we have a raging conflict about abortion rights in the country, and the best theory of constitutional interpretation would provide a satisfying answer of the following sort to the abortion debate. We, we don't see that so much. Instead, we, instead we see uh, first-order political conflicts getting no explicit treatment in the theory development. Instead, the theory presents itself in much more abstract second order terms, you know, about how to reach uh, sound decisions or through what procedures. Um, But those first order conflicts never go away and um, uh, have a way of kind of infiltrating the theory over time. uh, And there there are ways of like taking away the the ultimate choice from from a judge or making it seem like the judge isn't making those decisions. And and in a way, kind of hearkening back to what was criticized about formalism by the legal realists, right? So the, you know, on the right, what's disappeared is like a, uh, the dominance of like a theocratically inspired natural law. And on the left, what's disappeared is, is, is what you refer to maybe a, a more Rawlsian vision or positive Rawlsian vision of, of, of dessert, um, and redistribution. And in its place on the right, we see something like originalism where the kind of the missing piece in the theory is what should happen. Right. Uh, instead, you're pointing to procedures for reaching that should. And on the left, we get maybe representation reinforcement or something else kind of standing in place for that uh, ultimate decision. That's right. I mean, it's funny, you know, everyone uh, or at least many people in the Beagle Academy went wild uh, with uh, now uh, Chief Justice Roberts remark in the confirmation hearings about judges just call balls and strikes. And certainly these theories don't say judges just call balls and strikes, but they do kind of, they do, they do try to, I think they do have a similar affect, which is judges just follow a set of procedures or should follow a set of procedures, irrespective of the substantive question in front of them. 
So it has a, a, a similar attitude to, to Robert's quite controversial comment. And that's the that's part of the uh, appeal, at least p- part of the purported appeal at at time, you know, T sub one when this theory gets going, right? That, hey, we're here to we're going to take all the heat. We're going to add some light. And we do that precisely by depoliticizing, right? right. We're, we're going to transcend the first order conflict and be able to step back from it, get law a, a little bit further away from politics so that it's so that law is a separate thing and and engage with it that way. I mean, that's isn't the story that that's part of the the theoretician says that's part of the virtue of this approach, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And they, and they might also make appeal to a higher order normative value that that is itself, you know, in self transcends politics like judicial restraint or democracy or efficiency promotion. Um, but then the claim is that be- precisely because these theories present as transcending or suppressing politics in some way, they render themselves kind of <laughs> exploitable by people of all different political stripes. Uh, they they're, they're capacious enough that they can be appropriated for different political projects. And that's part of what makes them get traction and part of their appeal, but also um, what leads to this potential splintering of the theory that we see in the case of, say, originalism or cost-benefit analysis now. So you guys want to, maybe we should step through your, the, the timeline, the kind of, this is the, the descriptive part of the theory of theories, uh, you know, how this, because we actually talked about uh, Duncan Kennedy's uh, stages of decline piece a, a couple of episodes ago, really? which is kind of, a, it was a one-off uh, that was re- that Joe and I recorded actually for my modern American legal theory class that we decided just to release as a as an episode of the podcast and, and right. so, yeah so it, and, and you cite it in the paper as an as right. a kind of example of the sort of thing you're talking about but your your meta theory has important differences from from Duncan so I don't know if you guys want to just kind of step us through your timeline and maybe highlight how that differs and and what's distinctive about your meta theory yeah I mean I, I guess um, we are just trying to capture um, through a kind of stylized descriptive model this pattern that we observe in uh, recent popular prescriptive legal theories, uh, theories that tell legal decision makers what to do. Um, And the claim is that that there's this predictable uh, sequence. The theory is birthed and it presents, uh, as we were just talking about, as um, transcending some first order political conflict through appeal to abstract proceduralist techniques of resolving whatever legal question it is. And then um, critique comes in often highlighting values or groups that are said to lose out uh, under the decision procedure. So originalism, it's said, ends up having uh, a conservative valence of various kinds. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis similarly is accused of promoting efficiency at the expense of distributive uh, or moral considerations. And then the critical move really in the sequence is that people speaking in the name of the theory at the third stage now, um, after formulation and critique, don't just deny that these critiques have anything to them and, and, and fight them off, but internalize them and start to adapt the theory to respond to them. And in so doing, make the the- broaden the theory space, make it more popular, uh, maybe even more sophisticated, uh, but also undermine some of the very goals that motivated the theory in the first place. And that process can iterate indefinitely. And eventually, at the end of the cycle, the theory uh, no longer does the normative work or the practical work 
that it was said to do at the beginning, including uh, clarifying decision makings uh, uh, ex ante and uh, serving judicial restraint or efficiency maximization or whatever whatever other value it was said to serve. If we look at just a caricatured example for a second, so you know maybe, maybe it's the gay marriage debate, right? And so the conservative judge says. Um, you know, my, my method is originalism and that's my theoretical commitment for these kind of reasons sounding in democracy generally, rather than any specific result, right? This is, right. and, and when I look in the constitution, I don't see anything about marriage, et cetera, et cetera. And there are many different kinds of originalism, which is part of the story here, but let's suppose they're just committed to one, one type. So I don't see anything there. And, uh, and so there was no original intention to, uh, or original purpose or, you know, under any of these things to, uh, to, to protect uh, gay marriage or, or to um, forbid its prohibition. And so I'm going to decide there's, you know, that there's no constitutional right to gay marriage. And then someone comes in and says, well, how do you explain Brown against Board under your reasoning? Right. And, and so the, the, the people in the camp of wanting uh, either for results, and this is, it's hard not to talk about everything at once, you know what I mean? Uh, because for whatever reason, the people who want to stick with the theory of originalism, whether they want to stick with the results of that theory or they, or they have commitments to the higher order theory itself, they have to find a way to bring Brown into the tent. Uh, and so the theory changes a little bit. And it changes either by emphasizing um, purposes or audience or originalism spread out in time or the difference between, you know, or having a new notion of ambiguity and distinguishing between interpretation and construction. I mean, I know Larry Solom has had stuff to say about your piece, and we'll get to that a little bit later, maybe. But anyway, eventually you get to a new kind of originalism, which is maybe different from what uh, the judge had in mind at the time that he or she first formulated the theory when they were deciding a case. And, and maybe this process splinters, and eventually you get to, I, I guess, at the, at the death stage, a crisis point, right, where um, the theory is so capacious that it has very little to do with the – and what happens at that point? Have I even summarized it I correctly? I mean, that, that, that's obviously a nutshell history, but, but I think a pretty faithful one to the evolution of originalism um, in particular, and also generalizes to some extent beyond originalism – so the theory, you know, of originalism initially is meant to do certain work in fighting against the perceived excesses of the Warren Court. Um, it's meant to stabilize constitutional doctrine and in particular to rein in judges. Um, as you say, the theory of uh, original intentions is the original uh, uh, buzzword. And the objections come politically. This theory is going to have uh, evulsive consequences for racial justice and other things we care about. Um, practically, it, it's, it's, it's uh, argued that it, it would be a very difficult theory for judges to uh, operationalize. Uh, epistemologically, um, how do we know what these people's intentions were uh, so many years ago? They may have had conflicting intentions and so forth. So, but, um, and then the theory adapts so as to manage all those objections and accommodate them, but in so doing becomes so capacious that it no longer uh, predictably cuts in any direction and has lost some of its constraining force. Um, I think that, that that's a dynamic we, sit, we, we just say is more general, that political, practical, epistemological objections come, and then these procedural theories internalize them uh, and then become self-contradictory in the process. You know, the original, just, just as you put it, is, is a neat distillation of, of the trajectory. What happens at the end, some of these theories like originalism can continue to um, attract broad, wide support and not just from 
uh, conservatives. Other theories like popular constitutionalism seem to be fading away. And then we have a separate account of, of why some theories seem to stick around even past the point of doing the work they were initially supposed to do and other theories uh, die away, potentially to be reborn, we might add, uh, down the line. Yeah, if I, just, uh, if I add two things. So one is uh, I think it's important to emphasize that in terms of like what makes this stagial theory of uh, kind of theory change or different than, than others, if not all others, is first of all, that last stage uh, is not necessarily one of crisis. It's one of sort of maximal impurification, maximal play in the joints, and kind of maximal defeat of uh, many of the initial goals of the theory. But that doesn't at all mean that the theory will die or, or, or is necessarily even experienced by some of its um, advocates as in crisis at all. Some people will just say, this theory is going great. It's gotten uh, more sophisticated and uh, more deep and more wide ranging. So it's interesting that at this stage, which we see as in comparison to the stage one of the theory, quite problematic. What's what's striking is that many people don't think the theory is problematic uh, and it just sort of chugs on. Um, the, the other point, uh, just to add to what is unique about the theories we're talking about stage one and that we think really leads to this very powerful cycle of impurification is this search for a kind of common ground uh, decision procedure or decision formula. So in the case of originalism, it was original. It was initially original intent. And what's just very striking about that in a very literal sense is there you have a series of big legal conflicts and the theory's answer is, well, let's not consult any of our contemporary intuitions or views Let's all we can all refer to a group of people who no longer even exist. I mean, you can't in a way get more neutral than that right. from a certain perspective. Right. So the, the current debate, you actually are just invoking uh, a group of truly uh, media uh, sort of arbiters or mediators who are entirely not involved in the current debate. And we think all of these theories make a similar move at the final stage. You find that that's gone. And what matters is what all the people, all the theorists living today think in terms of, you know, uh, all of the, the variables you discuss, construction, interpretation, the various ways of reading the text and so on. And at stage three, it sounds like the or, or at time three, it sounds like there are these uh, the, the first order clashes that people are trying to get away from at step one in a way roar back onto the field and, and and the critics have facts on their side that you that you sort of can't just wave away right if you could wave them away you right. wouldn't respond to the critique by trying to deepen and broaden your approach to bring them on board you would just say well yeah i know originalism can't explain brown v board so what right you can't say that right uh, I mean, you can't yeah you can't wave them away for two reasons i mean one your prescriptive theory by definition. So you're trying to influence what government officials do and to be seen as a theory that offends large constituencies or has some fatal weakness politically or practically is going to severely undercut your prescriptive ambitions. And two, these are theories that, again, present at time one as depoliticized, and that's part of their claim um, to legitimacy. So to be exposed as partisan in some uh, severe way 
is to vitiate that initial claim to legitimacy. So you can't be originalism can't just be conservative conservative uh, uh, to survive as it was initially formulated. So it has to bend in response to reasonable liberal critiques. And but in so doing it, it right. It, and uh, I guess what I'm asking, though, is it's it's sort of like the the, the thing that exposes it, it. It's not a flaw. It, it, when a critic says, hey, your theory can't explain why Brown v. Board was rightly decided, right? Um, that's not a flaw with your theory unless you buy into the notion that, in fact, Brown v. Board was rightly decided. And, and if that's the very thing under debate, uh, of course, it, it it's not a flaw. It's a thing under debate. It's just interesting that it's yeah. there, there do seem to be some first order political outcomes that that can't be uh that they, they, they you reach a point past which you can't really debate them anymore right? right um so we've got a colleague lori ringhand who talks about uh confirmation hearings and there's a sense in which uh you know if you if you think about the the difference between bork one of the original originalists along with raul berger you think about bork's perspective and and you know he's probably the last person who sat at a Supreme Court or, or or could have said at a Supreme Court. I don't know that he actually said it, but the last person who you could imagine having said at a Supreme Court hearing, yeah, so what? So it so Brown v. Board wouldn't have come out that way. Big deal, right? Um, and of course he didn't get confirmed, right? The, so these yeah. <laughs> these two things are 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 not accidentally related. They're deeply related, and, and I just think it's interesting that there are some there seem to be some political brute facts that make the theory entrepreneur at step three say, you know, I actually have to respond to this. Like, I I can't just say, forget it. I think you're putting your finger on um, what is a really important assumption of our meta theory, but I also think a virtue of it, because we think it's correct, um, is it's, it, it really does make a very strong realist claim about the nature of legal theories. I think there are some legal theorists who uh, will insist uh, or who, who will try to describe a theory like originalism as having, um, as being a theory like a theory in formal logic or like a theory in linguistics uh, uh, in which, or like, or like a scientific theory, in in which it has certain parameters, and as long as those pa- parameters aren't shown to be inconsistent or self contradictory, there's nothing wrong with the theory. Our 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 claim is that, as you say, that these theories sort of are are inextricably uh, woven into this realm of brute political facts. Uh, and so that there is no real, there is no originalism that is a uh, pure transcendent originalism that wouldn't care about. Bro- I mean, there could oh, be, yeah, there could but, be, but, yeah. but we don't, but you don't, it, they don't, th- those aren't that version of originalism that just wouldn't care about Brown versus Board of Ed being wrongly decided in terms of the theory's own machinery. Those are, that's not the originalism that exists in the legal world. There could well be an individual originalist who is willing to sacrifice Brown or otherwise follow some logical set of precepts to wherever they lead. Sure. But, but these are theoretical movements we're describing, uh, that when they take off, um, have academic judicial and public discourses all associated with them, which are constant, constantly being interwoven. And, you know, for the movement has to be responsive to some brute political facts. If it's going to succeed, even if individual theorists, Aren't the Brown case is of, of course an extreme example of of a 
a brute political fact that it has to be accommodated given its uh, moral and symbolic force uh, in American legal culture today. But I, but I, I, there are other, uh, I would just say more generally, less extreme examples that that do a lot of work too. So cost-benefit analysis has no nothing really comparable, I think, to to Brown to to maneuver around. But it does have these persistent critiques from even before the '80s, actually, um, that it's going to be just too insensitive to serious dignitary and distributive concerns, and it could authorize regulations that are um, just going to commit gross injustice. And um, at some point particularly in the 90s, that, that becomes an objection that CBA theorists feel they have to engage. And so that yields a different set of accommodations, namely in the form of side constraints and uh, uh, other forms of CBA that admit soft variables, um, just to get us beyond the originalism example, and yeah. Brown, a case that just seems like uh, too extreme an example. I think the point is, uh, uh, is more general, that there are, it's not just very specific political facts, but also widely held political and moral commitments that yeah. uh, at some level these theories have to respond to. Let me, I've got two, I've got in mind two kind of sociological models here that might, one, one more general, one more specific. And let me start with the more general one and we can deal with a more specific one later. But what's, I wonder if this is conciliatory. So if we think about um, Balkan's notion of high politics at the court and, and, and kind of think of that generally as the process by which ultimately political decisions are made. Is what's going on the, that in law, the norm is that you have to have a theory that justifies the result in the case. And, and, and that theory could be, you know, the citation of someone else's theory, but there's got to be a theory. And that in law, like ontologically, there are a, a certain number of acceptable theories. And so in order to assert your claim legitimately and to be viewed as legitimate by the participants, your result has to be justified based on one of these accepted theories. And so what's happening is that you have to kind of fit your result under those theories or fit your analysis under those theories. And what's happening is that the list of acceptable theories is being contested over time. And and if I want a result which doesn't appear to exist under a theory that maybe you've pioneered that uh, that is now generally accepted, what I try to do is kind of get into your theory and like with a vice, widen it enough so that I can get my results through one of the acceptable theories. That largely harmonizes um, with what we say about how at least since the 70s, there's been a movement back toward proceduralist theories of public law that make some kind of claim of neutrality. That tends to be a, a relatively small set, as you're suggesting, sorts of theories that people can come in and widen the vice, as, as you nicely say, too. At the same time, there are, lots, of course, lots of other theories floating around there that they may not be subject to these same dynamics. So, you know, we mentioned in the paper, Robin West has uh, a well-known take on what she calls progressive constitutionalism. Mm-hmm. And Randy Barnett and Richard Epstein have libertarian constitutional theories. And those are... Um, more obviously ideologically driven and, and, and less susceptible to being impurified uh, precisely because they wear their politics kind of on their sleeve. Now, those, those are not the sorts of theories that we think are likely to get the most traction in the legal academy or with decision makers in, in our current era because they're so open about their politics and we live in this legal process inflected era. But of course, but they exist and lots of others like them do too. So, so, and we make no claim about the overall end of theories, you know, but just, just the ones that have this procedural character do seem to 
have outsized influence uh, uh, right now. Yeah, I would just the, the one caveat I would add to the sociological description you just gave is that I don't think we would say it's the case that empirically for a, every decision, each for each decision can only be legitimate uh, if it has if it kind of presents and articulates itself in terms of a justificatory theory. You know, I think that it may be the case that lots of judicial decisions are written that don't legibly uh, work through a particular one of these well-known theories. Uh, and nonetheless, I don't think they're, you know, they don't suffer any massive legitimacy deficit. I think, I think what we would say is that we are in an era today where certainly within the legal academy, but also at the high court and at several circuit courts uh, and in the legal community, uh, more the elite legal community more generally, there is a tendency to look for those uh, justifying theories as the basis of legal decisions. Uh, I think that's a contingent feature of our current legal moment, and I think it does date back all the way to the rise of legal process and the discomfort in the elite legal academy with what was seen as very results-oriented decision-making yeah, but I mean, in, in the in, in the in the as as early as the mid early to mid forties, but certainly in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, do you not think though that maybe you know even a lower court decision which does nothing apparently but cite to authority can that decision I mean be delegitimized by pointing to its inconsistency with any of the pantheon of currently acceptable theories? Right? Is that is that the mechanism for delegitimation? I think it would depend on who you ask. Yeah. Right. I mean, it depends on on audience. Uh, and that's just like a very I think that would be a complex empirical question. Uh, it may be delegitimized within a law school or within the yeah. set of all legal theorists or within a particular legal movement. Probably not within the general population. You know, maybe not, you know, the people, sub, the individual litigants subject to the decision. I think it would depend based. It would differ depending on what your audience is. It's a it's a potential cost depending on the influence of those audiences over the institution and that's right yeah yeah so right the more powerful and influential the audiences and the more the decision maker feels in some way beholden to them through you know the a variety of kind of social network effects right. i think the more likely the decision will try to not just rely on authority or or that may be inconsistent but 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 try to fit itself into the uh, a kind of quote unquote coherent justificatory framework that's recognizable by what you might think of as clients. You know, this is yeah. sort of like you think of like Dan Carpenter's model of bureaucratic legitimacy. You know, I think legal decision makers can be thought of as having clients. And those range from the people who are before them to their colleagues to, uh, you know, law professors they know to the bar associations they're a part of. And I think you know, legal decision makers will certainly be sensitive to what those clients think about their decisions. And it's that it's through that network that I think these prescriptive legal theories can have powerful effects on the way legal decision makers do decide cases. Uh, one sociological angle that you guys are just sort of grazing on is uh, the mediating role of, of law schools specifically and, and law professors and uh, the way that they create educational materials. Because it, it seems to me that that some some judges do appear to be uh, mindful of the power that an opinion or a group of opinions could play if 
those opinions become the way that people who teach in a particular area want to think about and explain and theoretically justify the the doctrinal the the sort of mass of doctrinal moves and i wonder what you guys think about that it doesn't you don't really you mention it is suit like it's in a passing sentence or two in, late in the paper uh where the role of law schools as mediating mechanisms for all of this sort of change takes place but what are your thoughts on that from from the point of view of sort of judges thinking about communicating with future lawyers through the bodies of professors yeah, I think there are a lot of potential, potentially interesting roles that law schools are playing in this story, and we could develop some of it more. So, so one mecha- transmission mechanism I think you're hitting on is when judges self-consciously write in ways that, that um, are meant to feed back into the law school teaching process and in that way contribute to the development of a theoretical um, school and apply it. And so, you know, Justice Scalia or Judge Easterbrook would be prominent examples here of judges who were really able to, to cultivate a theoretical movement because of their position as judges who, who, who were theoretically sophisticated and tied into law schools and uh, wrote in, in ways that were designed to be pick up, picked up by law professors at the same time that they were clearly also influenced by legal scholarship. And you see that in the evolution of Justice Scalia's originalism, I think, and in Judge Easterbrook's textualism. So for short, I mean, law schools as mediating uh, judicial and administrative outputs for students and for outside audiences, um, digesting what judges and administrators are doing, putting it into a theoretical lens, which judges then uh, recognize as what they're doing and further develop. And it you know, continually iterates is, I think, a real dynamic that is powerfully expressed in originalism, textualism, and CBA. Well, other things might be happening with law schools, too, that we, we, we just glance on, like um, what are law professors' incentives? <laughs> uh, some colleagues have given us kind of cynical stories about law professors being overly incentivized to be original or, or, or seem original, and this leading to overblown theories that are then going to need to be scaled back. Hmm. But the, kind of one engine of the, the propagation of these overbroad theories that, that then get impurified is that law professors kind of try to be overly bold, um, which, which, which might be about law professor incentives or about law review practices. I'm not sure. Law professors don't tend to depend on, on centralized grants um, the way that some social science and science professors do in ways that might constrain theory development. Mm-hmm. Um, law professors are more independent agents with fixed salaries. That might also play into incentives to, you know, try to strike out bold with, 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 a, with a big new theory. This is like the National Science Foundation is the center of gravity for scientific theories or something. And we don't, we don't have that. Right. We have law schools. Yeah. I, I think this is, I think this interaction between law schools and professionals, I think some people have, in responding to our paper, have sort of questioned it. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of talk in the legal profession, caricaturish talk about law schools being these uh, ivory tower or hermetic or overly intellectual institutions that are deeply out of touch with professional practice. And and I think think there's obviously some truth to that. I think one thing we we definitely went into this paper believing, and and, and this paper sort of hopes to, to demonstrate to some extent, is that that caricature is really, I just think, overblown, and I think is somewhat naive about the nature of 
what a professional school is. I mean, in terms of modes of transmission, law schools are training the lawyers who go out, particularly at elite law schools. These lawyers who are going to go work for judges, court for judges, and may become judges one day, or other forms of legal decision maker, are getting fed these theoretical models. Yeah, you know, so it wouldn't be at all, you know, it wouldn't be a shock to any military sociologist that there is a kind of feedback mechanism and a transmission loop between what's going on in officer training, what's going on in Annapolis or West Point, and then what's going on in the field. And then the sort of reports that come back from high-level uh, tactical commanders in the field, they go back to those institutions and sort of feedback their theories about counterinsurgency or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that shapes the next generation of officers. That's well-documented. I don't think anyone in the military says, oh, you know, those just pencil pushers who are training all of the officers. <laughs> right. They're just, they're not having any effect. No, it'd be a scandal if there were no effect. The analogy is imperfect, but I do think one thing we're pushing against is this idea, which I think is very, in a way, comfortable to both legal practitioners and law professors, that there is actually a strong and cartoonish divide between uh, the professional and the academic. I think we are pushing back against that idea and saying as a matter, as a sociological matter, this is a profession and law schools are professional schools. We might, there's also just some very simple and obvious transmission mechanisms like professors Scalia and Easterbrook become judges. Yeah. Scalia and Easterbrook and, and Professor Sunstein becomes Administrator Sunstein in the Obama administration, OIRA. So um, some of the leading theorists of within the theoretical schools we're describing actually get into a position where they can put into practice. And they all come out of Chicago, I notice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's there's another paper to be written about that, I think. (laughs) Right. Can I try out this more specific theory? Uh, Sure. I've got this idea that theories, you know, unlike mathematics and, and unlike science in general, theories provide an umbrella under which you can reach results, but they aren't logically constrained. I mean, you guys say this too, so this is nothing, this is nothing original. But theories are, um, are, are broad or narrow, and they are nested. So I'm imagining a tree, you know, like, like a branching tree. And at the top, maybe is something as uncontroversial as like Google's don't be evil, right? You, you can justify just about any decision that you would make saying, well, it's consistent with don't be evil. That means I can decide that either, you know, efficient breach is, is okay or, or, or it's not, or there should be punitives under, you know, you can, it, pretty much any decision you're going to make can be justified under something that broad. And maybe early on in this branching process, but below that is some distinction between, you know, consequentialism and deontology, right? Uh, and, and, you know, so you have a number of moral theories, which, which may be incompatible, uh, but are pretty high up on the tree. And as you kind of keep going down this tree and branching, you get more and more specific. And, Pioneers of a, of a particular theory may have in mind a certain number of cases or a certain, maybe even a certain case, and they've got a theory which makes sense partly because it resolves that case in a, in a conciliatory way. And they push that, and it becomes popular. And it becomes one of, like I said earlier, the pantheon of acceptable theories by which one can resolve cases. And, and I actually think that process is one just of acceptance and of individual modeling of how these theories will actually come out in practice, because ultimately what law has to do is provide an acceptable way to make politically fraught decisions on the ground. And so what happens when you, when you, when you have a result that you want, which, is, which really can't be justified under one of these theories, I think what happens is people will, you know, if I, if I want to apply an existing theory in a way that resolves a case the way I want it to, 
and that theory allows it, well, I'll just use the theory, right? So maybe textualism, I can read, you know, maybe as you guys point out in the um, in the King against Burwell case, maybe there's a perfectly acceptable, and I think there was, almost strictly textual way to resolve that in favor of the government. And I can then cite to the prevailing theory without much, uh, you know, without theory of creating a theoretical dispute, which will land me in political hot water for, for you know, breaking from the orthodoxy of, of, of the existing theories. But if it doesn't, I think what people tend to do, and maybe this is consistent with your kind of transaction cost um, hypothesis, and you know, I want to get into the hypotheses at the end of the paper about how these things change, but maybe I will only go up a few nodes on my branching tree. So, you know, the specific kind of textualism that exists now is maybe too narrow and confining to get to the where I want it to go, either as, again, a, a case-oriented matter or as a theoretical matter. And so I'm going to go up a branch to one where maybe text matters. Right. And this is you, you refer to this in the paper, mm-hmm. like one should start with the text and, and, and maybe I have a, a whole theory for why text matters, but need not be dispositive. Maybe that level of generality is enough to get me where I need to go. And so I will use that as my theory in the case. But maybe I will even get more specific. So text matters, but then I go down another branch and I kind of create a new branch off of text matters, which is different from strict textualism. And over time, as these things add up, we see that. The specific, and this is maybe like the libertarian-oriented theory that you, you you refer to these ideologically pure theories, which aren't, you know, don't exhibit the kind of effects that you refer to. But maybe what happens is someone starts with an ideologically pure theory, and then continuously people, you know, maybe there was a time, a political time, like, you know, the, uh, the New Deal or uh, the Reagan Revolution, where particular theories were kind of placed in that orthodoxy, placed in that pantheon of theories. And working from those over time, in, because of individual justice and individual cases or other reasons, people started pushing the theory up a node and then down to kind of parallel nodes. You know what I'm saying? And so over time, what used to be a specific kind of originalism uh, now becomes a more generalized kind of originalism with like eight different leaves under that general node. And what's the response to that? Either people say these are so incompatible that this isn't helping us anymore because under that general note of originalism, I can just choose the leaf that gets me where I want to go. And so maybe it's abandoned or maybe people start to fight amongst them. But I'm wondering, is that, um, I I don't want to keep talking. You're looking at me puzzled, Joe. I'm wondering if that, that, that mechanism of kind of moving up and down the tree of, of theories is consistent with what you're talking about. And if that is, it sounds sociologically accurate to you or theoretically accurate. I think there's something to it, although <laughs> I admit the the arboreal metaphor <laughs> got, got got. Well, I'm uh, thinking, you know, as a mathematician, I'm th- I'm thinking of like a you know like a Pascal's triangle kind of. I'm thinking of an actual tree where you're kind of branching well, off, right? Yeah, I w- I would just say a few things, and Jeremy may have a lot more. The um, one is that that story you told at the beginning about starting from a high branch, I think, is true to the way that law tends to consolidate normative disagreement into relatively abstract theories or high, high branches, I guess, in your, in your metaphor. So um, not, not quite so abstract as don't do evil, but um, we have these burning political and moral conflicts, and then we consolidate them into a you know, relatively abstract theory about how to interpret a text. Um, I think law does that all the time. And so that, that you would get these high-level nodes in the tree that are fairly opaque, as to how they're going to come out and get in, in specific cases, I think is very consistent with our story. And then the next level process, I think you were describing of, but cases arise and problems are pointed out. And so you get you, tendrils or leaves that, that shoot off 
that go in slightly different directions, some more stringent than others, uh, also I think clearly happens and, and creates this space for potential in, internal tension within the theory. Uh, still one theory, but now they're, they're, they're competing sub-schools. And what happens at the end, whether, that, whether ultimately everything gets reconsolidated into one master branch or whether everyone just goes their own way, you know, is, is either can happen and, and we have some hypotheses about why one happens to the other. But I think both are, we, we see both. So I, I just had two thoughts in response to that, that fascinating picture. There may have been, and it may just be my, my not following, but I think there may have been some slippage between whether that account you were giving us was uh, a, a intended to be a synchronic mapping of the theoretical or the meta-theoretical field at a given moment or whether it was, you know, whether it had, you at times were kind of telling a diachronic story uh, about how this captures change over time. I, I would say that if it, the, the tree diagram as a synchronic model of the legal field at a given moment, I think is, is perfectly compatible with our sociological account. It actually reminds me, it's sort of as if like, uh, you mentioned math, but it, it's sort of like if you, if, math influence social scientists, so like the structural anthropologists of the mid-20th century, uh, went into our paper today, went in our legal world today, and tried to give a like, like Levi-Strauss-type structural description of legal theory as sort of like a system of myth uh, or, or you know, a, a, a cultural system, I think they would produce something like what you just described. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite compatible. The only, the only caution I would want to raise is my intuition. I think it's our intuition and, and, and we don't get into it in depth in the paper because it's not a kind of intellectual, a full legal history paper. But the very idea that a legal decision needs to be justified by a higher order principle, uh, I think is somewhat historically contingent and particularly historically contingent in the last 150 years of American law. So the very existence of the tree, as you described it, I think may depend on whether the legal culture at a given time really shares strongly that commitment that there do need to be these higher order principles. So that is, this is precisely what the legal process scholars say mm-hmm. and assert is starting in the late forties and early fifties. And they're actually being, and they're influenced by, um, you know, they're, they're being influenced by analytic philosophy that's going on at that time. So the math connection, I don't think is an accident, that idea that there have to be higher order principles. Right. And obviously, uh, at an earlier stage in what's often called like the classical legal period, there were some folks also influenced by their sort of vision of what science should be, who believe that you sh- that really case decision-making should be governed by higher-order principles, and so there should be a search for these higher-order principles that are animating and justifying a legal decision. But there are also times in our history where I don't think the legal community necessarily shared that uh, intuition, such as during parts of the interwar period. Hmm. Can I throw something in from a totally different angle? Yeah, throw a bomb. So, um, well, not a bomb, but um, I, I just assume, you know, maybe a water balloon. <laughs> um, at one point in the paper, you gesture at the fact that you're focusing a lot on uh, prescriptive theories of public law. And you make so, you, you speculate a little bit about what private law things might be like 
uh, and how they might be different. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that a little more because I'm just curious about I'm curious about how you think it maps in in a private law domain instead of a public law domain. Well, we're open to it mapping um, quite a bit, uh, although you know private law both one it takes us beyond beyond our our, our bailiwick. Um, as as scholars, but more than that, because um, political feedback effects are one, though not the only key mechanism of impurification in our story, and because private law disputes tend to elicit less acute political feedback effects, we think the public law dynamics here are likely to be of impurification are likely to be more extreme faster. But um, but of course, private law disputes have their own politics and. Uh, um, you can't neatly separate them out from public law disputes. And um, so we're, we're open to the, you know, to, to extending the story. But as we say at one point in the paper, at least since the New Deal, public law disputes have elicited more political conflict. Um, and that, that's largely what we're responding to. Yeah. I, I, Beyond our bailiwick should be the subtitle for a whole podcast, don't you think, Joe? <laughs> that's, that's, I thought totally, that already was the subtitle of every one of our episodes. But with private um, law, I think, you know, the, the efficient breach versus morality, a promising idea, yeah. you have the... Yeah, uh, in the you, Clash of Values content, at the level of Clash of Values, it seems to me no different at all. I well, mean, and, I, and Jay Skelly writes move from property to contract in terms of residential leaseholds, um, you know, it, it, with the uh, warranty of habitability claims. I mean, so there's yeah. a... It seems that you do have the same conflicts, but I get that most private litigation, you know, I, I, well, I, I guess I don't get it. I mean, I, <laughs> I, don't know. I think I think I think you're I think you're right. I mean, partly it's just an issue of scale and um, scale. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's an issue of scale and not to make a pun. It's I think I think our, our I think we're I think we absolutely agree that uh, on the on the level of theory and on the level of doctrine, you will find per, at just as contentious disputes in private law. The intuition is that the the, the degree of publicity yeah. is different. Uh, that these these fights that may go on in private law just tend not to you know get in the news. Uh, well, the that same. that may be that may be true, but of course, it, again, focusing on on step T, you know, time sub three. What matters, uh, as I understood your 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 argument, what matters critically is how keenly the theory entrepreneur feels the critique articulated at T sub two, right? So it's really about their investment in professional reputation or other sorts of things that would make that person go, Ooh, you know, I really need to accommodate that. I really need to take care of our discussion of audience, right. Right. And what the political economy is of these decision-making institutions, but that you could have that internal sense of, Oh my gosh, I got to respond to that. Right. That's what's giving it the juice. Yeah. But it's no accident that one of the examples I cited was Skelly Wright and the famous DC decision, right? That in fact, you know, it's justified as a, as moving from property to contract and within contract, having these unwaivable implied warranties, but what is an unwaivable implied warranty, but basically a tort cause of action, right? So it's, it's, it's no accident. I think you see, uh, innovation in, um, or, or this kind of contest in, in private law theorizing exactly when the thing most resembles Mm. public law, right? Because it's the same audience. That's right. I, I would just add that not, it's not just the initial theorist who feels some urgency to accommodate of course not. critiques, but also the entrance of new theorists speaking in the theory's name. And again, we may, you, you just may see more of that or more of an influx uh, with regards to theories that are seen as affecting a lot of outcomes. Yeah, so rate of change. And, yeah. Yeah. and, so, and, so, and CBA may, may nicely straddle private law and public law in just the ways you're describing, where there, there is a kind of 
um, earlier debate about whether purely efficiency maximizing versions of CBA overly discount other logics and values that predates the rise of CBA in the administrative state, uh, yeah, in tort, which which just um, mm-hmm. it really 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 mirrors some of the dynamics we're describing, although although not as sharply. And then when CBA takes off in the '80s as a prescriptive theory of how regulation is going to be d- done, the, the debate and the cycle go, goes just goes to another level. Are you talking about like the early debate over the learned hand formula? No, even just thinking. I mean, so that, but yeah, even thinking about that, you know, in the in the in the seventies, where you see the action on CBA in the law journals is largely about private litigation. Yeah, and then partly it's it's endogenous, partly in response as a policy matter to this worry about the the kinds of jury awards you're seeing and the kind and the the very capacity of judges in tort cases to be essentially public regulators of health and safety. You have a move into the administrative state, and then CBA kind of uh, transforms. Our, our colleague, Jeff Gordon, has kind of tried to tell that story, about historical story, about the shift of CBA from a debate in tort to a debate huh. in, in the context of the administrative state. But, but just one other thing I would say uh, to your, your, your general point about to the extent to which this, why doesn't this just apply to private law to the same extent I mean, I think there are two dimensions to think of uh, in that movement from T, T2 to T3. Uh, so one is what you sort of emphasize, which is the intensity uh, which uh, the legal theorist feels kind of implicated in a critique. And I think that's very real. But so, too, is, as sort of Dave was gesturing at, the, the number of actors involved. Uh, so and the number of different kinds of actors involved. So one thing about prescriptive public law theories is they'll often be prescribing, right, the, the people they are trying to prescribe a decision procedure to will be more likely include not just judges, but also a range of other government officials. That's less likely to be the case in private law. And then I think you could say something similar, as we already discussed, about publics, you know, kind of non-professional publics being interested. Can I ask about one more thing? Have you guys thought about whether meta-theorizing, this theorizing about legal theories is, even if legal theories themselves, I think as the consensus is, are not scientific theories and have important differences, but whether meta-theorizing is a kind of scientific theory or whether we could debate, you know, since we're conscious of the fact that we are involved in theory creation toward an end of case resolution, whether we should debate how, what the right meta-theory should be. Do you know what I'm asking? Sort of. Yeah, yeah, because there's like a transaction cost story. And because I'm, I'm thinking of like back to the tree metaphor, right, that there needs to be I'm thinking in terms of supply and demand and who the customers are. And if there's enough demand, mm-hmm. you can get enough energy to kind of push you back up the tree to another node. And if, so that's one way of that's a kind of a law and economic story for uh, theory change. Yeah. But you could also imagine other moral theories of theory change, or you can imagine that this is just a an external you know, descriptive understand like it's this is we're studying human beings, right? And so it's this is really scientific, although complex, and maybe so complex that it's more of a an anthropology story than than you know than than a psychology story. Have you guys thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would want to be as you just sort of gestured at quite. You'd want to recognize that scientific can mean a lot of different things. Yeah, but I think uh, you know we we attended this paper as a sketch, and we ourselves are are not trained sociologists. But yeah, I mean, I think meta theories, I think, uh, or accounts of theory change 
are generally recognizable, even if the people putting them forward don't think of themselves in this way. They're generally recognizable as 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 a, as a, as a social scientific theory, right? A theory of theory change is a social is a form of social science, and it may take a more anthropological approach or a more psychological approach or a more rational actor behavioral econ approach, uh, or you know, it could take a variety of approaches. But yeah, I think it in the end at its full development, if one were to pursue our project further, as we sort of gesture at folks could, it it would be, uh, you know, it would take the form of a sociology of... Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the language you guys use is, right, the language of hypothesis, right, about, and and I wonder if that's, um, I'm thinking back to, you know, HLA Hart's description of primitive law as law that lacks secondary rules, right? And, Mm -hmm. And, and kind, of, kind of part of what I'm trying to work on now it, it involves observing that all legal systems are primitive at some level, if you go high enough. And, and to the extent that all we have is an external description of human behavior that, that explains why theories change, then really our law is primitive at that level, but maybe it need not be. In other words, maybe we could have law governing theory change. And of course, then you would have, you know, you'd have meta-meta theory on top of yeah. that, right? So, but the minute that you've observed that theories change in this way for these reasons, and 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 here's my account, and, and maybe people haven't been thinking about this, and so we have to have a hypothesis about why it's occurred, despite the fact that there hasn't been coordination over its occurrence, then we could certainly sit sit down together and kind of hammer out how we as a society think that theories should change. Um, mm-hmm. And we could write rules about that, right? And we could study whether those rules are really binding. It's that, you know, we could go into the whole the whole thing again, right? Um, uh, I, does that yeah, sound right? I don't know that we would need to make it prescriptive or uh, talk about it in terms of, of, of a law. But I mean, certainly the hope of this kind of meta theory is that just thinking systematically about how theories evolve gives us some analytic and, and at least descriptive tools to understand uh, legal practice. You know, and that and that 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 could be relevant for for all sorts of projects. But mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm just resisting the language of, of codification, you know, of the of the enterprise. One of the motivating impulses for us on the project was it's striking to us that other disciplines seem to see it as almost on the order of a disciplinary responsibility to think systematically about theory change and the work that theories are doing. There's no reason that law should be exempt from that. It seems to us, and uh, it, it seems perfectly appropriate to take a social scientific approach. To thinking about about the work theories are doing and and how they change, but anyway, I'm just getting off the train at that. No, last. no. I mean, if you if you think about anti theory for a second too, I'm thinking about uh, Guido Calabresi's Tragic Choices, right? Which is another book about theory change. Really, I think in it in some kind of says, look, there are so we don't have enough of things, <laughs> and because we don't have enough of things, uh, bad things are going to happen inevitably, and. What happens is that, psych- that that societies cycle through theory choices in order to vindicate values which have been lost. And when they do so, they, they necessarily submerge values that people aren't conscious of that have been satisfied. And almost like the goodness of a society, I think he says, is in the striving, right? That we're constantly trying to recover these values, whether it's there he uses like kidney dialysis and, and uh, drafting for the war and whether you can buy your way out and uh, how the law changes there. So I, I'm, t- I guess at the, uh, I'm just kind of reaching to try to figure out whether there should be a normative theory of theory change, right? Well, we, well, we, we, well there I might just say that we... We do have some kind words for the uh, impurification process. Yeah, yeah, you do. At the end of the paper, that, that I think sound um, in, in some of the keys you're getting at here. For example, that no one, I mean, there, there's, there's something pluralistic over time about 
the impurification process that no one value um, can 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 assert this kind of hegemonic uh, status and other values right. come in through the side um, sometimes through side constraints you know like in cost benefit analysis there's something tempering and pluralizing about uh, the fact that our leading prescriptive theories end up getting adulterated in the ways we describe that I think does reflect the kind of perpetual pull of of the suppressed or lost values. Uh, notably, a lot of the theories that we describe have um, they you know they start off kind of occluding more humanistic values, you know, mm-hmm. the soft variables that might sound in case by case justice or in in desert or distribution, and those are the ones that we see sneaking back in to cost yeah. you know, and so and, and their irrepressibility and the way in which legal theories evolve to make space for them does some healthy work, we think. It's so interesting because one thing I think of is how, like in the abstract, people will make judgments about things like the death penalty or, or in criminal law especially, people have views in the abstract about responsibility. And yet when they get on juries, they make very different, more humanistic decisions. And there's, there's something about directing a human mind toward an abstract choice. And then the, the work that being confronted with case after case of specific applications of that abstraction like there's something there's there's something in the in in being confronted with the results of your theory that causes a human being to search for other theories i think and that may also be why law is 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 sort of more resistant or has less stable ideal theories yeah exactly uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, just the one one final one thought uh, final thought on your kind of codification question is is i is i would just in thinking about heart in particular um you know i think that one can be reflective uh, about theory change and analyze theory change and detect trends in theory change, and even as David was suggesting, we do identify normative costs and benefits of theory change. That's one approach. Uh, it would still be, I think, even with that normative evaluation, it's still taking an external point of view to the enterprise, right? So yep. that that still wouldn't entail codification or the establishment of laws of theory change, one could also take the internal point of view and say, well, because of our uh, both uh, sort of purely empirical and then uh, sort of normative analysis of the empirics, we would like to establish some rules of theory change. And I do think that's a different enterprise. And then you're taking an internal point of view. I think you can see this quite clearly right now in uh, the replication crisis in uh, psychology, you know, Mm. Uh, for years, sociologists of science have been talking about the limits of replication, right? And so there's a, whole li- there's a whole literature on the limits of replication that both describe the problem and some uh, of these sociologists of science make some normative claims and normative evaluations about the status of the science given the replication problem. That's taking an external point of view. Right now, the APA is getting into the game and is actually maybe trying to codify some some sort of, sort of further rules of method, and I think this goes often goes on in in either natural sciences or social sciences, where there is sufficient organization and the stakes are seen as sufficiently high, where you do see something like codification of theory change. But those, but the, in that case, those people are scientists in the profession, and they're taking the internal point of view yeah, to yeah. their pursuit. And that's just that's a that's a choice of perspective. Yeah, the internal point of view toward uh, the methodology, right, by right. which they will. But, well, what's not necessarily contested is the theory of truth, 
Whereas in law, it seems like we can contest that, right? We can contest the ultimate or kind of more ultimate commitments to things. Right. Well, I think sort of that's why, that's why law, like, like law is a very liminal social science you know, <laughs> yeah. for, for, for precisely that reason. Although, you know, there are some yeah. social scientists yeah. and even natural scientists who aren't comfortable with the idea that these scientific disciplines uh, have a settled theory of truth, right? You know, so this is, there are debates in biology right now. So Richard Lewinton and Stephen Jay Gould famously, you know, kind of questioned the, the comfort that biologists had with a, with a kind of a, a very deep uh, kind of epistemic framework. Mm-hmm. So that can even go on in very hard sciences. It just doesn't that yeah. often. On, on this question of externalism versus internalism, you know, I might, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to segue back to, you mentioned Larry Solom's response. We found really interesting his, his remarks in the paper and, um, and helpful. But um, one methodological divide, I think, that, that just came out in that critique he had is, you know, we, we, we take a thoroughly external perspective uh, as just a commitment of doing this kind of meta theory, whereas he is operating internally to originalism and seemed to suggest that, that anyone writing on originalism should, should be too. <laughs> you know, and, and so um, uh, from where he sits um, within a kind of rarefied scholarly discourse on originalism stuff's just getting more pure <laughs> you know because everyone's reading each other responding to each other and moving toward with a big push from from his own important work uh towards interpretation construction and toward in this making this linguistic turn that he's pushed mm-hmm. and he may be right he may be right in characterizing his his milieu internally but but we're, we're looking uh, across discourses of originalism not just this particular rarefied scholarly discourse, but judicial ones and popular ones, which we think for prescriptive legal theories is appropriate to the structure of, of the practice. Um, and we're finding this uh, much more complicated phenomenon of uh, splintering and adulteration and loss of decisional clarity and loss of judicial uh, restraint. Maybe we were talking past each other a little bit. and we, we actually revised our paper in light of his comments. Mm-hmm. But one thing... <laughs> to some, yeah, a little extent, but but to some extent, just what came out there was a the difference between internal and external perspectives. And if you can't talk about originalism without fully inhabiting that that special discourse that he was describing, you know, it, then it'd be very difficult to write about originalism unless you're a true believer. And and, and but I would just say to just add to that. Sorry to jump into, uh, but I would say a, a a unique virtue of the externalist perspective, which I guess we would. I think we're in the camp of encouraging law professors, but legal scholars to do more of is it, it, it does problematize Larry's even Dave even gave Larry that within the scholarly rarefied community, perhaps uh, there is this kind of consilience. There is this move towards, if not a simpler theory, a more tot- you know, a more coherent and consistent theory. But the problem is once you take the external perspective, you just see that that's not that Larry can't help himself to that even because within the rarefied scholarly community, there are originalists who don't share, who don't even agree with that account of a move towards consistency and completeness. And what's interesting about legal theory as a sociological endeavor, and we make this point in the paper briefly, is there's no like legal theory card. There's no, you know, like originalist uh, party uh, that you can or cannot be a member of 
and uh, you can be uh, thrown out of it and defrocked yes. of your originalist label. Uh, and that's just that's just a fact about legal theory, which isn't the same about, you know, it's it, it's different than what it means to be a member. Yeah, of but a- actually, it's, it's also different from what it means to be a scientist. Yes. So the yeah. National Science Foundation, to return to, to that, exactly. through the grant mechanism, can actually police who's speaking in the name of a certain theory. And if someone's a wacko originalist or whatever scientific equivalent, they can not fund that project and thereby kind of rationalize and normalize particular science, scientific fields. So for originalism, of course, that can't be uh, in law. And so you get Jack Balkan coming from the left, uh, offering a much more capacious originalism that's consistent with living constitutionalism, and no one can stop him. Uh, and, and as Jeremy's suggesting, self-identified originalists from, from way back have also interestingly developed this rearguard action. And people like Stephen Smith, as you may know, are now saying um, originalism's gone, lost its soul, in his phrase, mm. gone off the rails, um, and we need to return to old-time ideas like intentionalism if we're going to restore the virtues that we thought we were pursuing uh, in the first place. So even, e- even the National Science Foundation can't really drum the person out of, I suppose they could be denied, you know, they, their tenure could be revoked or something if they're a university research professor. But but even there, you're ta- th- there are markers uh, that people can look at and see, are you, do you have the markers that other people who seem to be claiming to be that kind of thing have and you don't have them? But, you know, you could find uh, climate change uh, research consensus and uh, an occasional outlier study or, or to take a more charged example, uh, you know, sort of American Tobacco Institute, uh, whatever, right, uh, for, for cancer, uh, research on ca- causes of cancer and smoking and all that, <laughs> you can be pretty far out and still find someone to support your activity. That, that, may, that may be it. Just, the claim is just a comparative one, that the mechanisms of discipline in science for who's a true, who, who, you know, who's really doing good work that's advancing a certain theory, the, those mechanisms are, are sharper and more efficacious than in law. But, but, but of course, you're right. They may be porous, too. That's why I've always understood Larry to be working at the level of meta theory, right? Yeah. And with this like, very careful lay- laying out of, you know, if you have these philosophical commitments, then you will accept, you know, the interpretation construction distinction. Yeah. will accept yeah. this, uh, the, you know, the semantic thesis and the, you know, all, all the, you know, the fidelity thesis. And he has different arguments for each of these, right? It's yeah. a careful kind of mapping thing. Because if there is no ultimate rule of recognition for meta theories, then it amounts to persuasion, right? And, yeah. and he's, I think, trying to persuade through mm-hmm. saying, you know, we are philosophical compadres for these purposes. And if that's the case, then you should join me in terms of the, uh, you know, the equivalent of a primary rule here about uh, uh, about originalism. That's right. I mean, and I think that I think in this, that is one of the few ways you can, you know, there are, there are a repertoire of ways you can try to win in this space. And, and he is pursuing one way, which is familiar from philosophy, uh, right, trying right. to win. It, 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 is, it is interesting to ask, just as an empirical question, whether even within this relatively narrow space of originalism, that tactic is, is a particularly powerful one. Well, he, Which is not, and again, so that's just the externalist-internalist yeah, differentiation. Yeah, that's yeah. not a critique no. at all of the consistency or the coherence of his approach. It just, it may not even, all originalists may not even agree to play by those rules of persuasion. Yeah, yeah no, and I think he, he's a fa- I mean, he's exceptionally careful, and it's a fascinating case study in some ways. He, um, I do think he's added great sophistication to originalism and um, interdisciplinary depth. 
And he uh, genuinely has advanced um, a kind of abstract theoretical project in so doing. But at the same time, I think he is, he is uh, more purely normatively driven originalists uh, have, <laughs> have, may have found him threatening at times because um, he is willing to kind of jettison uh, some of the payoffs of originalism uh, in pursuing what Jeremy's calling, you know, a different, a different strategy. He's like a T sub three Jedi. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's, he really is. I mean, you know, it, it, because yeah. he, he's, he is so, I mean, to me, he's kind of like the quintessentially careful scholar. Yes. Right. Uh, and, and that, and that you, T sub three is the is, is that is where that person lives, right? Mm. They're fully exploring internally everything it means to say this is my set of commitments. You bring me new things to to harmonize and reconcile and consider and discuss, and I will go to work yeah, uh, you know, with we my making, coherence yeah. and my understanding and my depth of. Of of facility with these concepts, and in its being so impressive, it does start to you start to notice the kind of the T sub one people who start peeling off. Yeah, yeah this, but this, the T right. the T sub three scholar who is who is not committed to a theory because of case outcomes, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe the quintessential threatening scholar to yeah. the T sub one yeah. entrepreneurs, yeah, fantastic. right? Yeah, that, that's that, that's brilliant. The um, yeah, I do think. Um, I think it's again Stephen Smith who's written about this and said uh, he finds that the linguistic turn in originalism is it's, it's awfully scholastic. You know, we, 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 we <laughs> we've just you know we're we're now at the point of of of, of navel gazing and, and drawing these infinitely fine distinctions, and we've lost the whole raison d'être here, which mm. was to constrain judges in a certain way. And um, I don't even recognize this project yeah. anymore. And you can imagine someone like Larry looking up and saying, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, so the, the, another thing's going on with his, his, his comments on our paper, I'll just note quickly, which is picks up where you, where you just were. He, you may recall, also said kind of uh, he doesn't accept that originalism starts quite where we started in the late 70s and in the early 80s because, he says, he's gone back, read everything, and people who talked about originalism at that time really didn't have any coherent view. They used the label uh, sloppily and opportunistically. And it's not until, I don't know, maybe the late 80s or the 90s that serious academic theorizing really begins. And it's been all progress since then. And, and there, um, you know, given our externalist commitments, we can't accept that starting point or that confinement of originalism to the most specialized scholarly discourse. Um, which may really be the most sophisticated scholarly discourse, the disc, you know, but um, uh, people certainly think there is a coherent project of originalism as early as the late seventies. Paul Brest is, isn't writing his famous critique about the misconceived, you know, or mis- whatever it is, uh, quest for original uh, understanding, original understanding. Thank you. Um, in 1980 or 81, whatever it was without thinking he's responding to something real. Scalia is not urging a change in label you know, to a jurisprudence of, of original public meeting in his mid eighties speech, uh, without thinking that there's a theory out there that needs some refinement and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, to, because we, we, we don't accept the confinement of our meta theory to one particular, you know, discursive, discursive community, we, 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 we start the story differently. And that also helps explain our difference. Um, I think with him. Wow. I think, I think we have kept you guys on beyond the agreed upon time. Was there an agreed upon time, Joe? 
I don't remember. But this and, is awesome. And, and so I apologize. <laughs> but this is yeah, all... it's been we we couldn't not we couldn't I, not I do this, right? I, I know, but I feel I feel like it's just getting good and, and I feel like you know, if we kept them on long enough we'd have another paper. Yeah, another four or five <laughs> hours we'd really get somewhere. But <laughs> uh, the, the life cycle of, of podcasts, right? Yeah, get, just, you know. <laughs> We're doing our part to make the life cycle podcast shorter and shorter, I think, over yeah. time. Yeah. I'm certainly exploring the T-sub-6 senescence stage. <laughs> We're all about to enter, enter into a fall-in stage. Um, we haven't already gotten there. Well, we appreciate it. This, this is a really fun paper to read. And and I'm going to you know link it up in our show notes, as I always do. But uh, I do encourage uh, our listeners to read it. And, and, and one thing it really does for you – and and we didn't get into all. We didn't get into um, what popular constitutional constitutionalism yeah. is and what CBA. But if you have any questions about like what are the dominant theories in American law, and you want a capsule summary of these, and uh, uh, you know, as you caution in the paper, these are somewhat caricatured, and you're not. This is not a legal history, but but this is a very fine way to kind of take a brief tour through some of the major ways that academics, judges, and others think about what we should be doing in law. Yeah, and and, and then almost like a bonus. Uh, but really what the whole paper is about is this theory, <laughs> right, of, of how of how these things have arisen and where they're going. Yeah, and very it's just provocative. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So thank you guys Thanks, for writing guys. it and for appearing. Thanks very thank, much. Thanks so much for having us. Can I say something else that, that, uh, I, that now that we're all, we could put, we could put this back on air if you decide you want it, but, uh, okay. I can think about it, but the, <laughs> you know, and the, our, our discussion of Larry Solom at the end there, Larry is so exquisitely careful in his construction of arguments. Yeah. Everything in its right place, for sure, with Larry. That I thought there might be a fun April Fool's parody mm. for him in, in the manner that he does so well for others. Oh, can we put this in? Can we put this in? Let's see how it goes. Okay, okay. all right. <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. All right, we'll try it out. We'll try it out. You know how his magnum opus in this area is called semantic originalism? Yep. Um, so one could do pedantic originalism. <laughs> mm, brilliant. <laughs> And uh, it, it would be done lovingly with, with greatest respect for his work. Do you have an abstract in mind? I'd have to write it up. I w- maybe I'll pitch this to him. And, and I think he'd be, he'd, have, he'd be a good sport about it. But, this, but the idea would be to just capture the way in which he's so incredibly careful and rigorous um, that it can almost have a lulling effect <laughs> on the right. reader. The but, problem is it would be a 10-page abstract. <laughs> that, that would be, that would be, <laughs> It'd be part of the joke, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, but you would also have to capture what's also lovable about larry's work he's fiercely independent right like you, you this is not you never feel like i never feel when i read his stuff i'm sure he has ideological commitments like we all do sure but i just never feel like this is uh this careful taxonomy of reasons is all designed to kind of lull me snake charmer like <laughs> so that i don't see that i'm being led down an ideological tunnel toward one end at least i never see that Right. And as you said, that's why he's like a T3 Jedi. Uh, and, you know, uh, or, or, or to, 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 to those who want to have a more uh, sort of disciplined uh, ideological movement, he obviously is so problematic uh, because he is independent. Right, well, th- look, this is staying in the show. And, uh, <laughs> and, and which, which, by the way, is going to I think, you know, there's no other choice but to call the show T3 Jedi. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I knew that the moment I said it. <laughs> I know you, did. you seem so self-satisfied. <laughs> is that a mistake to put that in the show, the pedantic originalism? No, no. I mean, look, our show is goofy. Um, Joe has over the course of 
uh, 98 episodes now, insulted every single Supreme Court justice, living and dead, at least nine <laughs> times. Uh, so this is, you know. <laughs> I, want, I, I take great issue with that. First of all, I would never, on principle, insult Harlan Fisk Stone, period. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Second of all. I Columbia Law School. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, although that's not why. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but also, I don't believe I've ever said a bad word about, uh, about Justice Louis Brandeis. Uh, uh, and how could I? Um, I mean, you know. Uh, so I just I just want to dispute on at least two as to at least two of the justices <laughs> in U.S. history. Um, uh, it's just not the case. Hey, I'm just going to drop this little segment into a future episode where we talk about overclaiming in law. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I got to splice this whole conversation into the middle somewhere. You yeah. know, I, don't, I generally don't do that. But I'm going to drop your introductions in the beginning. But yeah, I think all this is going to have to stay in as epilogue. Got a little more editing work this week than usual. I don't but think so. Live because of what you just said. Because yeah, of what you maybe, just said. Maybe so. But no, this, this has been great, guys. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you. We, thank you. Yeah. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we, 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 we do. This has been fun.